And welcome to One and Done TV. I am one of your co-hosts, Ian Hamilton. And I am connecting to the first co-host, but my name is still John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that only lasted one season or were canceled mid-season or several other complicated but few variations on that idea. Right, John? Yeah, this is actually one of those fun variations, but we'll get to that later. Until then, we are buffering on the graves of shows that have long or not so long been since gone. We dissect what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. Today, we are talking about the 2020 experimental sitcom Connecting, but we've been watching some other stuff. Ian, what have you been watching? Um... Well, this weekend, me and Natalie had, we were really busy, and then we had a day off. And I can't believe we did this, but we watched four Harry Potter movies. I know, because you didn't finish any of them on the Peacock account that I gave you. It said that I need to continue watching four different Harry Potter movies, because apparently you, didn't, you don't feel like watching credits, Ian? Is that it? I I guess not. I mean, it's weird. Peacock adjusts everything, so the credits go by really fast. It was uh, really annoying at first. I thought that there were just weird edits happening, and then I was like, oh, this is the commercial-free version of Peacock, so they still keep where the commercials would (laughs) be put in, only it just comes across as like cut to black, a second, and then come back. So the one thing I wanted to ask you about this was it wasn't the first four Harry Potter movies you watched. No, it was like three through six? Two through six, actually, I guess. Apologies. Um, So that's five movies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what? Saturday we watched, the second one was on TV, and Natalie was watching it. And I was like, all right, screw these commercials. I'm going to streaming. I can't believe that Peacock streams the television version of it, though. That is insane to me. Just stream the movies. Stream the movies as they are. They even adjust so that it's full screen. It wasn't even widescreen. What? Isn't that crazy? Why why would they make all these changes? It's a streaming service. Just stream the movie. Don't make any changes to (sighs) it. Okay? I'm paying for no commercials. I demand... Perfect movies. To be fair, you're not paying for anything, and neither am I. So, who pays for it? Your dad? Yeah. So ask ask him. Well, I guess he'll well, listen to this. So, <laughs> John, what are you watching? I rewatched. Speaking of rewatches, uh, La La Land. I just rewatched it Why? for the first time in a few years because I really like the movie. I think David Chazelle is a great director. Um, Elise and I have also just recently been to L.A. So. She wanted to watch something that was L.A.-based, and she threw out True Beverly Hills, but we had actually watched that relatively recently. So wanted to give La La Land a go, and yeah, I forgot how just kind of 
celebratory and joyous it can be. And I think Ryan Gosling's really good in it. And I think Emma Stone is just exceptional and she deserved every bit of that Oscar that she got. And same with him and same with the way it was shot. Like that's a movie that I feel like deserved every Oscar that it got, including not winning best picture, but it's a beautiful movie. Music's pretty great. The story's a little meh, but I don't know. I just think Damien Chazelle's a really great storyteller, and I will watch anything that he does. La La Land is my brother Kevin's favorite movie and favorite album. I agree with Kevin, except for the favorite movie part, but just his general reverence for it. Good job, Okay, Kevin. I was going to say, you don't agree with favorite album either. No, 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 no. But I really enjoy it, and... Yeah, I don't get the hate that it gets. Well, you know what La La Land does in a really strong way is emphasize showtime. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! In 2020, we were all dealing with a lot. Luckily, connecting actually had a little bit of an escape as it was canceled after four episodes aired of its eight total. Ian, we are talking today about the, I guess I would just call it a Zoom comedy because about 98% of it takes place entirely through sort of video calls, though they never specify the software. They never specify the software. They do uh, give a pretty big shout out to Verizon 5G at one point. Oh, yeah. But otherwise, they never... Get specific. Uh, I think they even say just internet service at one point. They don't even say the company. That's a good point. I can't believe this. This was canceled after four episodes? After four episodes aired, yeah. NBC or Peacock? It was an NBC show. Wow. it It started airing October of 2020. It was ordered to series, straight to series, actually in like May or June of 2020. So still pretty early on in the pandemic. And it actually, in its fall lineup, replaced Brooklyn Nine-Nine for its last season, which I thought was super interesting because for those that never followed that, you know, drama, Brooklyn Nine-Nine basically had to rewrite their entire last season after the summer of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests and the sort of role that police play in society and the reevaluation of that. And so Brooklyn Nine-Nine didn't debut its last 10 episodes until like the summer of 2021 and connecting actually filled that void when Brooklyn Nine-Nine would have aired. That makes sense as a placeholder because this show is very much about um, the tumultuous events of 2020 and the service that everyone was feeling. How do do, uh, Gentiles say that? (laughs) The... The general sort of ugh of everything. It was scary. It was boring. It was tiring. It was uncertain. It was triumphant. It was filled with rage. And there was a lot of divisiveness. And this show highlights all of those things. Although I guess it didn't really get to get all to all of it. If uh, it only 
aired four episodes. Well, the other four aired on Peacock and NBC.com after the show oh. got canceled. Gotcha. The show follows a group of friends as they are all sort of enter this group chat that starts on March 29th of 2020. They date every single episode at the very beginning of it. And the last one takes place on election night. So it's that sort of period, eight different days throughout it. I think it's a good time to talk before we get into the characters. We can talk about the creators of the show. The show is created by Brendan Gall and Martin Garrow. They were they playwrights? They were not. No, they wow. created the show Blind Spot, though. The I think it ran for like four or five seasons on NBC. So they already had a relationship with NBC okay. the network. Garrow also directed half of the episodes alongside uh, Linda Mendoza, who did the other half. She's got like 143 IMDB directing credits, like has presumably worked on like every single TV show that has come out in the last decade, as well as like some pretty venerable comedians, hour long specials as well. I mean, if you're going to make a show that features six backgrounds per episode, you're going to need <laughs> one hell of a director. Yeah. This show really just focuses on these, these main characters living in their homes. There is Okay, this is one thing I wanted to sort of clear up with you because I wasn't sure about this. Was this an open sort of chat room that these friends have made for each other or did they make appointments to enter this room? Well, I've worked as a somewhat of a Zoom technician since And I wanted to get your pandemic. perspective on this. Yes. like, And they definitely fudged what zoom can and can't do please elaborate well right you need to make a meeting with a time and then especially back then it's like it didn't really start till that time you had some leeway maybe you could open it beforehand but there were other apps where you could kind of just be on and other people could join you and mm -hmm. any one of your friends could just join the room if you wanted that possible. But it did not seem like that's what they were doing, like it was on their phones. So they just kind of used Zoom and FaceTime and mixed it all together and did whatever they want. It's like three people talking and then, oh, all of a sudden there's this new person entering and it definitely seems like it's just a virtual chat room that they're in, in a way. Yeah, um, where they can just kind of come and go as they please. Sometimes things are organized. When we get into the highlights of the show, there's some events that people are sort of organizing around. But for the most part, they try to play it up basically as this group of people that get together and hang out in this virtual room. While all... Um keeping inside of their homes, you know, during quarantine, which kind of made me think, I was like, well, when I moved to Austin, I had a crew of friends, but we all just had a bubble of like three houses. We all lived near each other and we got together and played board games and stuff and just didn't go outside of that. And so the fact that they only talk to each other all the time 
I don't know. I mean, I know some of them had families and nannies and stuff like that. Just kind of made me be like, well, why don't three of you just hang out? You yeah. Know, you could still do that. They did make some vague references to like a couple times when they would meet up together outside for various things or like people would couple up or have outdoor events and stuff. But the show was very much predicated on like they needed to be in these locations at all times. And the show was filmed remotely too during the pandemic. So there was, it seemed to be entirely in people's houses using their own backgrounds, probably providing them with some equipment and some guidance on how to do things. But this is an entirely virtual production, which in and of itself, I think should be commended. I always think that, you know, taking big swings like this and just trying to make art during a time when everything is so dire we were all just so exhausted. They must have put a lot of themselves into making this thing. Yeah, not to mention the episodes came out relatively quickly after the events that they were talking about. Mm-hmm. So the idea must have been we're going to be having these political, social conversations with each other as they're happening pretty much like give or take a month, you know? Um, but I, I did wonder what the show would have become had it kept going. Once things opened up, you know, they would have gotten together probably more physically, but still kept up with, Oh, you know, they referenced our uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you know, if this was coming out, if season two is coming out this summer, They would have had an episode about Roe v. Wade being turned over, uh, you know, probably a month later. So, and this is very much a left-leaning show, not just leaning. They bring the hammer down. Yeah, they, uh, it's not so much a lean as it is sort of a bulldozer that is coming from the right to push everyone over to the left. Yeah, everyone is very much safe and masked and sanitized and uh, pro the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, defund the police comes very heavily into it. Uh, Mm A lot of LGBTQ stuff mm -hmm. and people. And I think we can dive a little bit more into who these people are right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. The seven members of this virtual chat group are all friends, some related. But I don't know about you, Ian. I felt like the connections or at least the sort of establishment of their connections was pretty loose. Like Um, they had decent chemistry, but like I didn't really know how sort of some of them got together in the real world before this to establish such a strong bond. 
No, we had like a brother and a sister and an in-law and a godfather, but ultimately I don't really know why any of them were friends or why they were so tight-knit. I don't know if they ever established that. No, but they they are tight-knit enough to show up at this group chat to talk about their problems and their feelings and their joys and their triumphs. There is Annie, who is played by Otmara Marrero. She is an author, presumably like an author for hire. I should say, too, that this the show takes place in L.A., uh, so a lot of the sort of occupations that are revolved around the industry, the entertainment industry. So other than Annie being sort of a romance author, I didn't really see much for her to sort of hang her own hat on. It seemed like a lot of her kind of bigger characteristics were defined by her relationships to other people. I don't know if you felt that way too. I think that's right on, John. Annie is a love interest to another character, Ben, who we'll get into. And at one point, she starts dating an internet guy. And then at another point, we deal with her relationship with her parents. But I wouldn't say she has a very strong personality like the other characters. No, she is sort of a focal point for everyone else, but doesn't really seem to have much driving herself. Unlike uh, the aforementioned Ben, played by the comedian Preacher Lawson, he, in the beginning is getting out of a relationship and then goes back into a relationship with uh, this sort of micro to mid-range influencer named Paz. But Annie clearly has a crush on Ben. Ben used to have a crush on Annie years before when they were living in Chicago. So it's this kind of will they, won't they get together thing. But Ben is constantly afraid to be alone and open himself up in a significant way because he is afraid of getting hurt. He holds everything inside, which is why later he develops an ulcer. Yeah. But that is more a product of... We only know that because of the ulcer. I wouldn't necessarily have guessed that from the episodes preceding the ulcer. <laughs> exactly. He. The only other connection he has, too, is to this friend group, he has brought in uh, Michelle played by Jill Knox, who is his sister. And her husband, Garrett, played by Keith Powell, who was twofer on 30 Rock. People might know him from that. And fun stuff, uh, Jill Knox and Keith Powell are married in real life. They have one child. So a lot of their scenes are filmed together, presumably in their house. So That makes a lot of sense because... When I was picturing the show, I can picture six, you know, Zoom windows. Yeah. <laughs> and when you said seven characters, I was like, oh, right, because those two are always together. So me and my wife, Natalie, are both actors, and we filmed something together in October 2020, and we were cast in it because the two characters had to make out, and the director did not want to cast two people that didn't know each other because of COVID, and it was easier to cast a married couple. So yeah. that was pretty interesting. There's I guess we were engaged at the time, but whatever. There's a similar story with, have you heard about the office and uh, Jenna Fisher's husband's role 
in that show? No. So when Pam in the office has Jim and Pam's first kid, there's a scene in the hospital where there's a lactation consultant. Mm. And that, so this guy needs to basically like feel Jennifer Fisher's breasts for an entire scene. And so that was her, I think, fiance at the time. Lee, wow. who played that role. But there is that sort of like extra comfort and chemistry. I think you get when you have a real life couple on screen. And for me, they were probably the most earnest and believable pair in the in the sort of septet. I think it helps because they had physical scene partners for with sure. each other. Yeah. As opposed to everyone else who's just talking into a into a camera or into a phone or something. Yeah, exactly. And they have to get the timing down and everything and they have to mostly focus they have to focus more on their cues probably sometimes than they do on their actual performances. Yeah, I was thinking about that with the editing of this show is that it didn't have a lot of space that a virtual conversation would have. Right. And I got to think that there was a lot of space between cues in order to accommodate that situation. Mm -hmm. So then they edited everything right on top of each other. Which I think can work when you have the dialogue to support it, but it does sort of take away from the authenticity of it. John, you're tipping your hat. You're tipping your hand. Okay. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. Speaking of tipping hands, uh, Annie and Ben worked in retail together with two of the wow. other group. <laughs> One of them was is uh, Rufus, played by the actor Eli Henry. Rufus definitely encapsulates the sort of internet troll, truther. They're, everything's a conspiracy. He's paranoid about everything. Where In the first episode, he wears an entire hazmat suit to a Zoom call. He makes his own hand sanitizer, definitely sort of spouting the theory of the day that he's found on Reddit constantly. I mean, when's the first episode take place? Like March 20th? March 29th, two days after my birthday. Happy freaking birthday, John. <laughs> Buckle up. Buckle up. 28's going to be a different year. Rufus is probably the most left truther hacker I've ever seen portrayed. Uh, he was an interesting character because he probably had the most definition of any of the characters. Yeah. Because he I stood think... in opposition, I think, to so many people. And not necessarily as like a foil, but just as a person with such extreme points of view that he could stand out a little bit more. Yeah, that's true because everyone else has kind of the same views on things and he's out he's tends to be the outlier. He definitely is kind of the outsider of the group. I mean, they still clearly have like a kinship, but it's a lot of oh, Rufus, look at you making your own mead. At one point he said, "I literally never had friends before all of you." So, he's still he's still figuring out the social cues. But the fourth member of this initial retail team is Ellis, played by the actor Shakina Nafak. Um, Ellis is a trans woman. And I saw online that this is the first role in a major network sitcom for a trans actor. So 
Well, that's interesting because I was actually around Shakina when I I worked on Difficult People. I was going to say that was, yeah, that would seem to be her other big claim to fame. Yeah. And she was a big character and a big personality in that show. And uh, it translated to on set. I mean, you knew when she was there. (laughs) Uh, It was interesting to see her play such a thoughtful character in this show as opposed to a boisterous say everything I'm thinking, throw my words in your face kind of character that she played on Difficult People. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting because I I guess I I sort of thought that was her closer to her personality from what I experienced on set. Not to say she's uh, difficult, but to say she did seem to be a larger than life, boisterous kind of person. So this was an interesting change of pace. She does have that sort of boisterousness, too. And I mean, you can only go so boisterous, especially when you are limited by, you know, one seventh of a TV frame. But Mm -hmm. you do have you do get that sense that she is a larger than life personality. She cares about, you know, LGBTQ plus rights, but she also loves the L.A. Clippers, uh, especially her boy Kawhi Leonard. Oh, that is a big part of her personality for the first like three episodes. The last member of the group is Pradeep, played by the actor Parvesh China, who I remember from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. He's also a very prolific voice actor. He is a father. Uh, he seems to be a little older than the rest of the group. He and his husband have two kids that Ben is their godfather. But beyond that, I wasn't really sure how he was connected. Clearly fits in with the group, but he I wasn't really sure, again, how he got into the group in the first place. Yeah, looking back after eight episodes, I would say that Ben was his kid's godfather as a plot point. <laughs> yeah they needed you know ben was isolated and alone and didn't have a lot of storyline going on so they needed him to try to shoehorn his way into pradeep's house in order to be more social mm-hmm. so yeah you know it was a story thing <laughs> i don't know how much setup was given to a lot of uh, that, but at the same time, it's not like they sat around thinking about this show for, you know, years. It's like they they wrote this in a matter of months, and then put it on immediately. I mean, you know, I I, I give it some leeway for that for sure. Yeah, and I do give the show credit for not pushing all of the relationships out in the pilot. I think the only thing that we established was that Ben and Michelle were brother and sister. And obviously that Michelle and Garrett are married. But beyond that, it's just people who are clearly friends. They mention chosen family a lot. And they clearly have just kind of found each other in L.A. and are there to support each other. All of these characters meet in this virtual chat room across a variety of days during the first eight months of the pandemic. So I thought it'd be a good time to talk about some highlights. Each episode takes place on sort of an individual day. March 29th is the pilot where we just kind of establish a lot of the characters. 
April 15th is a pretty exciting one, though. Here are some highlights. Uh, someone mailed Annie a gun, but it turned out to be a flare gun for her neighbor. So in that case, nobody mailed her a gun. Like She keeps saying, like, somebody mailed me a gun, but I think she just kind of stole her neighbor's mail, right? Uh, yeah, that was an interesting turn in the episode because the group freaked out when they heard that someone mailed her a gun. And then it's like this cute turn at the end of the episode that's like, Annie, that's a flare gun. Oh, man. Oh, Annie. And then doesn't she set her, like, kitchen on fire because she shoots it? Yeah, Ben says it doesn't shoot bullets, and then she pulls the trigger, and she said, I thought you said it didn't shoot anything. He said, I said it didn't shoot bullets. Like, it's clearly a flare gun. She said she thought flare was the name of the brand of the gun. That was the biggest part of her personality to that point, (laughs) I guess, (laughs) was that she didn't know what a flare gun was. On a more sort of serious note, uh, Ellis lost her job as a result of her the business that she was working for closing during the pandemic. Garrett offers to pay for Ellis's rent and insurance as she's looking for another job. Pradeep also gets really annoyed at a delivery driver for not delivering vegan chicken strips that his kids want. Pradeep has a very contentious relationship with his kids throughout the entire show. And I think that is a tough thing to sort of establish the sort of initial sort of warm part of his fatherly relationship with his kids because we never see his kids. And so therefore we can only see the parts that he is yelling at them while they are off screen. Right. We just hear some uh, added in audio of children's laughter and then he shuts the door and it's over with. And so the running joke was kind of that he's always hiding from them. Yeah, he's always recording in, like, the laundry room or a closet. He's never very rarely out in the open. Right, like, his friend group is his escape from his family. And did you say he's married? I thought he was, like, divorced. No, he's got a husband. For some reason, I thought they were split up. I no. I mean, it's because you never see him with his family. You never see his family, which makes sense because of the shooting uh because of the way they had to film the show. And that's a big thing of contention, too, is that people are like, you're letting your husband do all the child care and all you do is complain about your kids. Although we would only see that part of it for sure, but it does come across that way also, that he's just always running away from them so he can sneak some wine with his friends. And considering how often they talk, that's a lot of time and a lot of wine and a lot of... uh escapism happening on his part. Absolutely. We jump ahead about a month to May 25th. This, the next sort of stretch of episodes really takes place over the course of like a week. You get three episodes because it kind of starts with the group is getting ready for this trip to finally go to Big Bear, but everyone is starting to break their COVID protocols like Ben went to a barber shop. Uh, Pradeep brought in a housekeeper and a nanny to help with the kids. Ellis went to like a soul cycle class in a basement that has one window. So there was ventilation. <laughs> and uh, Ben also got back together with his ex-girlfriend Paz. So people are starting to branch out, but 
they kind of come together in this sort of virtual Big Bear where they're all, you know, they change their backgrounds and stuff. But it was supposed to be this big vacation that they didn't get to take together. Yeah, it was the thing of, oh, you broke quarantine. And then it turns out everybody broke quarantine in their own way. And they're trying to highlight the contentiousness of COVID where it's like people being responsible versus people just going out and doing whatever they wanted versus people feeling like they're being responsible compared to other people's sense of what responsible means or even some people being like, you know what? I'm going to take a chance and not be responsible for an hour. Mm-hmm. And that's what this episode was trying to tackle. Then it gets a lot heavier very quickly because obviously this was the end of May of 2020. And that episode ends with actually all of them watching the uh, George Floyd video. Yeah, that was a weird weekend for me to get engaged. Oh, yeah. You were out in the woods too that weekend. Yeah. Um, It was just before everything like really blew up though. Mm -hmm. So we could still enjoy it for like two days. (laughs) Yeah. You were able to, to hide yourself away for a little bit. And there is this really affecting moment because again, they're all kind of watching it at the same time. But then when the virtual chat room ends um, and I think it should be said that uh, Ben, Michelle and Garrett are all black that Garrett just kind of leans over the episode ends with him just saying, I can't keep I can't keep seeing this. I can't keep seeing this. I can't keep seeing this. So the next episode deals a lot with, especially Michelle and Garrett and Ben dealing with the flurry of white guilt that is coming at them. Michelle takes a, is a lawyer and basically she's trying to get her work done, but she can't get her work done because people keep saying how, you know, they watched Do the Right Thing over the weekend or how great they thought it was that Michelle Obama is tall. And she's also editing Annie's, like, Facebook post to her racist cousin. And Rufus is, like, trying to explain reparations to her. Oh, well, Rufus gets called out because he's like, I know how we can give reparations to everyone. Just give them Bitcoin. And she calls him out for being like, you cannot solve a problem that you only just started caring about, which I thought summed up the episode pretty well. Yeah, she calls it colonizer talk. It's not just about processing the trauma of what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and every one that came before them and unfortunately after them as well, but also dealing with the trying to appease, you know, all these friends that are trying to be good people, but just aren't saying the right thing a lot of the time. Yeah. Or, you know, it's the white guilt is a way of overwhelming your black friends with your own feelings. Absolutely. Exactly. It's as Bo Burnham has said, uh, processing the sociopolitical event through the myopic lens of your own self-actualization. Oh my. And then they get uh, ready for a Black Lives Matter protest. Ben can't go because he got this aforementioned ulcer that has sort of been building up for all these fights that he's had. And uh, Garrett actually gets arrested at the at one of the protests, too. Yeah, but they gloss over that pretty quick. He's like, oh, I've never been so glad to have married a lawyer. And that drama is over with pretty quickly. And then we jump ahead two months Annie is going to be moving to Orlando to be with her family. 
but her family is they are sending emails out that say refund the police. So she has to have these conversations about what her parents are saying and trying to get on the same wavelength with them if they are going to be under the same roof. Oh, John, it's not just a conversation. It's a rousing argument that inspires them to change their minds and see how defunding the police really aligns with their own wants and beliefs, John. The dialogue of this show is about 30% 30% platitudes. Uh, and this is a definitely a big part of that episode. Yes. It definitely signifies that. It was, it's the hard, hardest ratio of platitudes, I think, for sure. And it's an episode that's de- dedicated to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's true. Uh, so nearly three months later on Halloween, Ellis throws a big Halloween party where Annie also is trying to juggle this Halloween party with this date with this internet installation guy that came to her apartment, which was, as Ian is currently rolling his eyes. They try to do the old sitcom switcheroo, two dates in one night. I have to have two different costumes, uh, which made me think about the the Malcolm in the Middle episode where he has two dates for the prom and he, and him and Stevie are talking and he's like, Wow, this is really interesting. This is like the sitcom thing of two dates to a dance, and I'll have to change outfits. He's like, this could be a really interesting experiment. And and Stevie cuts him off, and he goes, you have two dates. I don't even have two lungs. Don't be a jackass and just choose. <laughs> Quick shout out to Malcolm in the middle. God bless really sums up that plot line. And I think Malcolm in the Middle called this plot line out 20 years prior. Uh-huh. So why they're attempting to do this now is beyond me. And just because Annie throws in a line at the end where she apologizes for, quote unquote, pulling a Mrs. Doubtfire, that doesn't really make the episode any more entertaining. Uh, yeah. Also, it's probably the hundredth apology that she says or any of them say to each other <laughs> in the show up to that point. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry I did this to you guys, but from now on I'll be more understanding of your feelings and we can move on from there as a friend group. Well, I accept your apology, Annie. And now that I know that you care about me, I always knew you cared about me, but now I know that you know me as a person and Let's just drink some wine and have fun now. Ha, 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 Also drinking peach raspberry schnapps, I think, at one point. Uh, straight from the bottle, yes. Straight from the bottle, baby. The finale sort of kind of brings all this together. There's a few things that are tied up. Uh, ben starts therapy and also basically gets together with Annie, finally, in the only other sort of seen that two people share a frame other than Garrett and Michelle. Uh, Michelle might be pregnant. Uh, Rufus and Ellis say that they have been dating for a little bit. And so everyone has kind of this nice, tidy ending as they are going into hearing the election results before the series ends. And they're all talking about how they're all in this together um, right. So Ben and Annie finally get together. Who saw that coming? Oh, there's also this, it's a scene. It's only a couple sentences, 
but it's basically a clip show of the whole season. Oh, where yeah. Where they all just kind of recount everything they've been through together. Mm-hmm. And then it ends with, but whatever happens with this election, we'll all get through it together. And here we are connecting. Oh, I think after this commercial break, we're going to have to connect on some Dunzos, huh, John? Sorry, I was buffering. Oh, after this commercial break, we're going to have to connect on some Dunzos. Oh. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show we watch. It could be the best. It could be the worst. It could be the most. It could be the weirdest, whatever it may be. We have decided to give elements of this show some of their just desserts. We each have two Dunzo Awards to give out to the show Connecting. Ian, as I talk to you over Zoom, what is your first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo Award is the Shoehorn Award, which is that Verizon 5G (laughs) product placement being shoehorned so hard into this show. Not since the Cool Ranch Doritos scene in Queens have I seen product placement so blatant. Which, actually, I never talked about on the Queens episode that I want to bring up really quick. In Queens, there's a scene where they're all the all five queens sitting together on a bed eating Cool Ranch Doritos, talking <laughs> about how delicious they are. And by the way, Cool Ranch Doritos never come up before or again. And I guess since you can't have a bag of Verizon 5G... <laughs> You have to just say it really blatantly and try to move on as quickly as possible. Um, Fun fact, Ian, I didn't catch this line. Oh, Annie, I told you to get Verizon 5G. It It is what we've been waiting for. No, I actually have Verizon 5G, thank you, but this is for my home internet. So not only does it let us know that they both love Verizon 5G, but it also lets us know that it's not for home internet, okay? It gives us a little insight into the product. Well, it's interesting because Verizon does have a 5G home internet product. I got to think this was around the f- when it first launched and yeah. it was just in the air, however that works. Damn, dude, how did you not notice that? It's so it was so disgusting. I'm a I analyze telecom marketing and I must have just been disconnected. Wow. I was going to say numb to it, but <laughs> uh John, what's your first Dunzo award? My first Dunzo award goes to the most obnoxious introduction music. Wow. And that will go to the show itself. Um each episode opens with some basic title cards that say, like, this episode takes place on, and then it says the date before they get into the cold opening, before the connecting. But how it is scored is basically a two-year-old slamming on random keys. So it's like, bomp, 
No, because there was some there was some syncopation in there. There was a little okay, there was okay. a little there was a little pickup there. It just it scared me every time, especially because sometimes I was done watching an episode and I was done watching the show for a stretch of time. And I would, because of the way my TV was set up, I would exit the app and then I would start to try to watch something else. But the app was still going in the background and I didn't realize that until I just was getting startled with blank banging like <laughs> piano keys. I was like, oh, I guess connecting is still somehow playing on this TV. Oh, it scared the absolute uh, PP out of me. Also about the title sequence, I'm glad you brought that up because it took me a while to realize it was even the title sequence. Like I kept thinking it was like a short commercial before the show. Oh. Almost every time. Like <laughs> like a little promo, like a five second promo or something like that. And then I was like, oh wait, this is the opening credits. So strange. So Ian, what is your second Dudzo award? I'm gonna give out the only montage award, which goes to the only montage in the whole show, which was a very welcome change of pace. <laughs> I've never been so happy for a montage to come along. And it was uh, the episode where Annie was practicing how to talk to her parents about defund the police. Mm. They were montaging, like, these are the talking points. This is what you should tell them about. This is right. why it's the right thing to do. And, and meanwhile, Rufus and Ben have their own montage of Rufus coaching Ben on how to tell Annie that he's into her. Those points were about parental sort of touchstones. Remember, that's the thing that Rufus was holding up. Rufus was holding up talking points about things Green. that parents like to talk about. Things like the weather or how many remotes there are in the house. Because Ben was going to coach Annie during the call about things that he should bring up about things that she should bring up while she was talking to them in order to sort of cool the conversation. Because Annie, the thing that we also know about Annie is that she goes in hot. Like when she's drafting messages of, to her racist cousin on Facebook, it's usually like she wants to call him a butthead. And everyone's like, you can't call him a butthead or else he's not going to respond to it. She's like, but what if he is being a butthead? Uh yeah, it was like, do you want to humiliate him or do you want to have a conversation and educate him? She's like, I want to educate him, but I, I I want to humiliate him too. And then she says, mostly humiliate. Right. So, okay. Well, anyway, whatever the montage was, <laughs> it was a welcome break from the incessant talking. This show, talk, 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 talk. No breath between two people talking. However, a lot of breathing in the long monologues that they were given. Yeah. Um, this show felt like sometimes, if not often, the actors were just reading their lines. Yeah. And it gave a very strange pace to the show. And I mean, any 
Any listener of this show knows that I do not like generally fast-paced dialogue, and I I do not like things that feel overwritten to me or like I can see the writer trying to tell me something as opposed to it feeling like it's coming from the character's mouth. And yeah. the show was chock full of both of those things. <laughs> yeah. And as a fan of some things that are overly written, I think one of the things that makes that a little bit more palatable is when you have give and take and relationships and something to go off of. But when you have this kind of format where, as you said, it's literally just people talking to a camera, you lose that this is real at all. Like it doesn't feel like it's part of the larger world itself. It just feels like somebody is saying a line and there are some like fun lines too. Like there's this one line that uh, I think it's Michelle says where Garrett and Ben are gaming and she says uh, she can't play video games anymore because ever since she burnt that clown in the Sims. Yeah, that was fun. That was a fun line. Like that's a fun sort of little anecdote. She but, felt too guilty about hurting a clown in The Sims, and she just can't play video games anymore. Also, Garrett at one point uh, says to everyone, after they have revealed that they've broken their COVID protocols, he says, this is just like when I got spoilers for the last season of Game of Thrones. Disappointed for so many reasons. <laughs> so there's good lines like that, but I think they are best delivered by... Garrett and Michelle. And I think it's because they have at least somebody there to play off of somebody to interact with. And, but for the most part, when you have this kind of editing, talking to camera, it does feel like people are just kind of shouting to themselves. I think this kind of plays off the worst with uh, Pradeep as a character. He can be very loud and conflict heavy. And when he does it, like there's nobody reacting to him, it feels like in a sincere way. So he is just kind of shouting into the void and being loud in order to play comedy as opposed to play character. And I don't necessarily fault the performer for that. I think right. it's more of a product of the setup of yeah, the show. They would go to reaction shots and it felt like, okay, I need a sad face reaction shot. Okay, sadder face reaction shot. And surprised face reaction shot. Uh, okay, we can edit it in. But it always felt like, too, that those there was nothing that could be subtle or earned about those reaction shots, too. Like that sad shot would, if you had to score it, would be like, hmm. Or that surprised would be like, what, 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 what? There, you had to amp. If a moment called for a five, you had to automatically add like three or four to it in order for it to read at all, given the format of the show. Mm. Which we can, we'll, we'll talk more about uh, later. We've strayed from my Dunzo, but what's your second <laughs> Dunzo, John? Well, my second Dunzo is also about the format of the show, and it's the sort of most confounding structural element to it. And that would be the breaks away from the video conferencing that they do at the beginning and end of every episode. So like I said, 98% of the show is in this sort of chat room, but they tend to open the episodes with sort of establishing shots of basically the characters at their computers. 
And I feel like it's in an attempt to put them in a space and not necessarily make them cameras on, or faces on a screen. But what it does is it just kind of shows them in that same background from a different angle. I would have mm. loved to see, and I know that there's limitations, obviously, when it comes to the way that this is shot. I would have loved to see, for example, Pradeep looking small in his closet while the camera was back and you could see his kids running or something like that. Or Ben, maybe you could see a little bit more of his apartment. Or, you know, even like Michelle and Garrett. Maybe they're in two separate rooms, um, but they're in the same shot somehow. There, I think I thought there were ways to kind of do that that they just kind of shied away from it. So what it felt like was just kind of a broken element when you could have just as easily had the entire show take place on that call. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I, I mean, I think they were right to feel like they needed to change things up sometimes. Um. Actually, I didn't mind that part of the show as much as you did, I think. Um, I didn't. I, I guess I didn't, like, dislike it. I was just kind of confused by it. I I thought they it was a half measure, and that was the part that frustrated me, was that it was following an instinct that I think was good, but I just don't think it was enough in order to convey what they needed to, and therefore it just kind of came off as confusing. That's why I don't think it was, like, a bad thing. It was just like a, huh. Yeah, I don't know. You got to do something. But uh, I mean, I appreciated when they broke away from the format to do a virtual poker table. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah. But it was the only time they did that. I was like, oh, maybe we'll break into different chat formats. You know, maybe do a, a community type thing where one episode is just in the poker table. You know, I mean... Granted, I assume the animation takes time and costs money, so maybe they couldn't have done that. But if they could have played around with the format more with stuff like that, or I think that they overly wrote the dialogue because they're like, well, how do we make a 22-minute show when everyone's just sitting around, right? It, it, it has to kind of be like a play, mm-hmm. which is why when you said the show is 30% platitudes, that's what made me think that, this must be written by playwrights because it's essentially the same as just writing long scenes with six characters, seven characters in the same room, all kind of arguing, talking about politics, you know, riling each other up, calming each other down, hurting each other's feelings, finding common ground again. So they wrote a lot of dialogue in order to fill that time. But then the director directed everybody to talk really fast. Mm -hmm. So then they had to put more dialogue in there, which made them recap the last conversation, then get their opinion about what's going on, then precede the other people's feelings or something. And it, it made for language that did not feel genuine and at the same time, felt it felt rushed. Like it didn't have to be. They could have, they could have informed us differently yeah. in ways that were just talking. Okay, mm-hmm. like 
basically every episode being a different political highlight of 2020 was a gimmick. And they could have gone so much deeper than just having six people fill time talking for 22 minutes. Yeah, I fully get that because they do that thing that I know some other COVID set pieces have done where you get the little like nuggets of recognition, you know, making the hand sanitizer. Oh, you sent me that sourdough. Um, They even name drop Amy Cooper before even the George yeah, Floyd I noticed that. stuff happens too. And so you get these little like nuggets of recognition, but when you have that without the sort of sense of authenticity or that relationship building, it's tougher to make it feel like anything more than a recognition nugget. Uh, on that point, what I think Mad Men does really well is that they're living their lives and then big global events or big national events happen. And they're like, wow, that's crazy. And then they just keep living their lives. And I know that 2020 was unique in that something came up in the news. Everyone was hyper-focused on it because we're all locked inside or whatever. We're all just on our phones 24-7. But there was also a fatigue that came with those things. And I didn't think like they portrayed that human experience really well. Everyone was hyper-focused on whatever was going on. And they'd sidetrack with a little bit of friendship gossip. I know that there is a whole episode about fatigue, actually, now that I think about it. But (laughs) I just don't think that they got the point that everybody wanted to escape that as well as be a part of it. I saw this uh, when I was doing research for this episode. I saw this article that was written in 2021 about um, covid themed entertainment. And there was this quote from this uh, social psychologist, um, uh, Karen Dill Shackelford, that I thought was really interesting about the types of content that people are gravitating towards. She said, there are two ways of coping with trauma, active and passive coping. Some people like to engage more with the news surrounding the pandemic because it makes them feel as though they have some control over it. Others cope with avoidance. And for them, escapism is key. And as I was thinking about this show, it sort of teeters on both of those things. Mm. It sort of keeps you engaged with the dialogue that had happened the few months prior, probably validating a lot of other people's feelings, using these characters as a proxy. It was also trying to be this sort of escapism, you know, using humor to make light of some of these very heavy things. But I don't feel like it really did it really dove into either camp that much. It sort of fell on that line because it wasn't telling people anything new and it was also relying too much on giving gravity to the experiences that people had rather than sort of investing fully into the escapism that they might have been craving, if that makes sense. Yeah, the gravity of the event imposing itself on people as opposed to people reacting to an event. And we could dive more into this when we talk about why the show was canceled right after this commercial break. 
And now, a word from our sponsors. Connecting started airing on October 8th of 2020. By November 2nd, the show was canceled. The first four episodes had already aired on NBC Thursday nights. It's 8.30, 7.30 Central, replaced by Superstore reruns. So, yikes. But the show only averaged one and a half million viewers across its four episodes and a 0.3 demo rating. So, real rough numbers. They dropped the rest of the episodes exclusively on NBC.com and Peacock. Again, the show is ordered straight to series. So they had the episodes done. I think they just kind of wanted to get them out there. But when we're thinking about why the show might have failed or why it wasn't connecting with audiences, I think it really highlights the difficulty of making fiction, especially about the pandemic and putting lives in there. Ian, can you think of like other shows, movies that were about COVID that came out in 2020 or 2021? I mean, the only thing I can think of that blatantly was about COVID was The Bubble, the Judd Apatow movie, Mm -hmm. which I never saw. And I gave up halfway through it. Uh, which is too bad because actually I thought the trailer was funny, but I saw it. It got such bad reviews. Yeah, uh, I didn't bother trying. And I think that co- writing about COVID is tricky because, well, first of all, it's in many ways still happening. You yeah. know, it's not over. No, nope. it's been two years, and we're all sick of it. Yeah, and I'm surprised to see a show tackle it so head on, even though they felt like they were at the forefront of something. By the time it came out, everyone was exhausted. Okay. We yeah. didn't, we, Lovecraft Country had come and gone. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we already knew these big conversations that they were having in the show and we'd already yeah. lived them and we wanted to escape it. And yeah. uh, frankly, to see something take it so head on, I thought was an offense to what I thought was this big, civil contract that we've all entered into, which is we don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. We don't, I don't want to talk about it anymore. We talked about it ad nauseum for a year and a half, especially, you know, pre-vaccine and then vaccine. And there was just so much anger, hurt, frustration, everything you could possibly feel invested in that year, especially. And then, I mean, it all pops off January 6th. We don't want to think about it anymore, okay? We lived it. We know what it was like. This isn't like in World War II where they were making a bunch of movies to try to glamorize it and rally the troops and keep everyone's spirits up. We want to move on, and we want everything to be normal again. Yeah. There's so many other shows that sort of addressed the pandemic without making it all about it, but they were like, you know, in their fictional world, like, oh, we've moved past it. Like... And just like that, the Sex of the City, you know, reboot, spinoff, whatever it is, they, like, the first scene of it is like, oh, or can we take our masks off? Oh, yes, we're past that now. It's like, okay. And then the rest of the show is without masks. And wow. 
there's been stuff like that. Like I know Gossip Girl, I think also sort of half addressed it as like a post-pandemic thing. And I mean, I know the Connors had like a whole season. Superstore Uh, did too. But that makes sense because it's like impossible to, you know, talk about retail without having people in masks. And so there's sometimes where it's unavoidable, but there's this idea of like the commercialism that can come from, you know, this sort of shared trauma. It just doesn't feel wanted. And it was an interesting time too. I was thinking about a couple other sort of video call formatted things that had come out around that time. There was actually, there was this horror movie that was on shutter, the horror streaming service that I can't remember what it was called, but I heard that was pretty good. Oh, that did really well. It It was did. Yeah. Okay. Oh man. What was that name? Host. Host is what it was called. So that apparently did pretty well, but it was also right before Connecting came out, there was this HBO thing called Coastal Elites that was a series of monologues given by some really high caliber talent like Sarah Paulson and Dan Levy and Caitlin Deaver and Bette Midler and Issa Rae. And it was these five monologues about what was what different characters were going through during the pandemic. And that was like mid-September. And then mid-October, there was another thing on Netflix called Social Distance, which was this anthology series about fi- people filming themselves during quarantine. And so it seemed like the fall of 2020 was when people had enough time to make professional productions with remote filming but also these things kind of came out around the same time that people just didn't care. And it's really tough to kind of make entertainment, make something fun that we're all still going through. I think the only thing I saw that I enjoyed, the first season of Curb Your Enthusiasm was it like, it all came together at the end that Albert, Brooks was a COVID hoarder because he had a closet full of all this Lysol and, uh, you know, rubbing alcohol and, you know, uh, hand sanitizer and everything. But and that felt like nice and kind of cathartic. But the rest of the season didn't really deal with it. No, exactly. And again, it's putting these already established characters that we presume are living in the same universe as us and making it a, you know, a realistic consideration as opposed to basically building an entire world around this tragedy. Like, I think my favorite use of it, my favorite one-off use of it is the ending of The Other Two, the second season of The Other Two, which it doesn't really spoil much by saying that the last five, the last line of season two of the other two is something to the effect of, and it looks like everything is looking up for Carrie Dubeck. So mark your calendars today, March 13th, 2020, as the day that things start getting better. <laughs> and then the season ends. That's Fantastic good. ending. The only piece of entertainment that I think should exist about how we have felt during the pandemic is inside, is Bo Burnham's inside. Mm. I really do. Did you ever watch it? Still haven't watched it. 
you disappoint me. We it, talk about it a lot in the Bo Burnham, uh, Zach Stone is going to be famous episode. You should check it out. For sure. I won't get too into it here as well. But when I think about the sort of existential dread, the isolation, the frustration that we have felt over the past two and a half years that is portrayed there by one guy doing one thing himself. And then the way that this show is trying to capture some of the same feelings by having people sort of speaking to cameras and, you know, trying to reach out to each other in that way. One feels very authentic to somebody's personal experience. One does not. And I think it is sort of putting this, for lack of a better term, Hollywood filter on a real deep down entrenched sort of dread that makes that art feel a little bit more realistic. And I also just truly don't think that it can be replicated, nor do people want it to be replicated no, in that and way. I think, you know, you're speaking to, despite my well-documented admiration for Bo Burnham, why I haven't watched Inside, because I don't want to relive it anymore like even if it's cathartic i don't i don't even want to touch it but the thing about that is it's not just cathartic it does that thing where it actually like says things that you haven't really been able to articulate whereas this show has no subtext and it's all text it's It's all text it's all text it's all there like even in the inside outtakes there's this one 30 second song about him screaming at a spider that he has been fought, like watching on the walls. And it's like, Oh yeah, I do that too. And I don't even clock that as an activity that I do. So he's able to tap into that. That's what all good art um, is comedy, music, whatever. It's when someone says something out loud that you know, to be true and yet you've never really heard anyone say. Um, it's it's true insight. There's I, I always think of that as uh, in Hamilton, there's this line, I think so often of death, it feels more like a memory. And that line just like shot me in the face. I mean, yeah, the, uh, there's some Shakespeare like that too, um, where it really just puts into words these feelings that you did not realize you thought a million times a day and yet have never articulated. But this show articulates everything it's feeling. And John, why don't you articulate if you would renew? I wouldn't renew. I would not renew. I think we've, I probably showed my cards pretty early there. I, I don't really have any reason to hide the cards when this show doesn't feel like hiding its cards from me. So the one thing <laughs> that I... It has nothing up its sleeve, that's for sure. No, it does not, except for details. Okay, and I just want to bring this up as one of the... I. It was one of the... I felt like it was very emblematic of what frustrated me about the show. Was the, again, lack of establishment, lack of real meaningful details that allowed you to connect to these characters as people rather than as 
entities that are reacting off of each other. There was there were a couple lines where they could have gone into some details and they could have had conversations like people have conversations. Uh, when Ellis is talking about how she got fired, she refers to it as, yeah, that place that I'm managing went under. What's the place? Just tell us the place. <laughs> because you know what? These are your best friends. And if you can't even make up some restaurant name or some store name or something like that, then why do we care about you if you're not going to like let that kind of information hit? There's another line too, how Rufus finally sort of establishes the original quartet of friends. He said to Ben, you know that place that me, you, Annie, and Ellis all worked retail at? What is the place? Wow. Why are you saying it like that? Why can't you're not talking like friends are? And I think that that's what the show is really missing. If yeah, the show like is we about- have two friends that worked at Old Navy, and anytime it's like, oh God, Old Navy, or you know, we could just say the words roller roo, and we know exactly who we're talking about. <laughs> Our friend that worked at the roller rink, that's for sure. So that's how people talk. Dude, the show does not. I don't give even have to its... say the name of the roller rink as long as I at least say roller rink. Okay. Exactly. We could say roller. We could say roll. We don't even, we could probably fill in the rest of the blanks. And, you know, these people might not have been friends for 25 years like we have, but they have been friends for some time. And so if you're going to give them this sort of innate connection, you need to give them dialogue that is going to support their chemistry. Otherwise, it does feel like people shouting at the viewers. And that's what really lost me with the experience of this show. So that is what I would do. Now, Ian, would you renew? I would never, ever ever in a million years renew this show dude where would this even go i well actually i do think i see where it could go it wouldn't have to be over zoom but it could keep being about the big hot topics of the day and i think maybe they were relying on something like that to push buttons because the like the election episode would have come out you know right around the election uh i think it was november 2020 so they could have designed it like that, and, and maybe they hoped for it to be like that. Uh, and connecting could have taken on new meetings, you know, but not just about connecting through Zoom, but connecting as two people. But I uh, do not trust the show to elevate at all. The acting, and look, I don't like to be t- too tough on anything, and I know there are a lot of reasons why this is, but the acting was absolutely atrocious and I think a lot of that has to do with the format you know some of these actors I know from other things I know that they are not terrible actors but a lot of it felt like they were reading their lines as they were saying them or like a bad monologue at an audition yeah there was one line reading There were a lot of line readings, but one of the 
again, sort of most telling, I think, was the scene that ended the third episode where they're all watching the George Floyd video. And there's some people that just kind of shut their cameras off. But at one point, Ellis just screams, get off of him. And it just felt so forced. Like, this is the show telling us the video that they're watching. It's like, we already know the video that they're watching. Yes. Why this doesn't, this doesn't ring true that this is how somebody would, like, somebody would certainly internalize that, of course. Anyone watching that video would. But it, the way that it was, it just felt, it felt like it was the show telling me something as opposed to letting me watch these people be people. Uh, there was almost nothing genuine about the show at all. They felt like, it felt like line robots as opposed to acting. The one exception, can I just say the one exception yes. that I think to that rule is I think Keith Powell. I thought he actually gave a good performance throughout the show. And uh, his wife, Jill Knox, too. I thought they did pretty well. Uh, there was the one episode where, you know, Ben is receiving reparations from people that are just, like, buying him stuff because they feel guilty. And Michelle, like I said, is dealing with all these white coworkers, talking about all the things they're doing for their own self-actualization. But the way that Keith Powell's character sort of internalizes just the pure exhaustion, that rang, that is the one thing that rang very true to me. Like, they're supposed to go over to Pradeep's house uh, for like a socially distanced dinner and his wife calls him and she's like hey where'd you go and he's out walking he's just like I need to walk and also like I can't go out with this right now and he'd been playing video games all day too and it wasn't like an avoidance thing oh that's the thing it was it was like a bit of an escape but it was also just like him just like I just can't. And I felt that. That was the one genuine emotion that I felt watching the show. It was just the, it's tough. And I just, I just don't have it in me right now to address it. I could see that because I would say, you know, my bitching about the acting and the writing has a lot to do. Well, okay, the writing's garbage. But... <laughs> It has a lot to do with the way it was directed. The way that everyone had to spit out their lines really quickly took away from a lot of the humanity of it. And then that's compounded by the fact that for the most part, they don't really have scene partners. Um, I just have a bit of dialogue here. I wanted to just spit out really quickly that sort of describes the constantly apologizing, constantly feeling, dealing with a ton of stuff at the same time. Everything I've already said about this show. I messed up. This therapy thing's new, and I didn't mean to call you childish. It's fine. To be radically honest, I have way bigger things to worry about. Garrett's volunteering at a polling place, and we're fighting. Oh, I don't know. The election? RBG dying? Climate change? The wildfires? Brianna Taylor? Waiting to see if the government takes my uterus and my brother or my husband first? I just feel like curling up into a ball and hugging a stuffed animal. Is America broken? Yes. Do I love an oily sardinus asada or a Carlo Verde? Of course I do. But we can't just run away. And what about the people that can't leave? We have a moral obligation to stay and fight to make this country better for everybody. Do we, though? 
It's like what you said with me in my therapy. It's hard. It sucks. And sometimes I might not want to do it, but it's worth it. And since when have you been scared of a fight? Since I might be pregnant. I know. I know it's early and maybe probably nothing, but I might be pregnant and I don't want to raise a black child in this country. That sounded a lot like Nathan Lane's song in The Producers, the second act, Betrayed, where he's recapping the entire show in the jail cell. You can make more money with a father with a hit. We can do it. We can do it. I can't do it. It was just so... uh, It just, it felt, the whole thing felt like a bad play to me. The whole, I, I hear you. I I can't describe it anymore. I've already said it. I've already bitched about it. I don't want to waste everybody's time talking about how goddamn bad this show is. (laughs) This is the worst show we've reviewed. By far. I disagree with that. I disagree with that. By far. I disagree with that. I would watch Cooking with Paris over this. I would watch adults adopting adults over this. Whoa. I would watch Bob Patterson over this. This show is not a crime like Adults Adopting Adults is. But at least it had the thing where you want. I wanted to maybe keep watching Adults Adopting Adults. There was some intriguing parts of it to me. There was nothing about this show that made me want to watch more, ever. I, I could think of a few shows that, are, that were much more difficult on me than this was. Bob Patterson, what else? Absolutely. Any of the ones that you just said? Really? Uh, you'd watch rather you would rather watch this than Cooking with Paris. Oh yeah. Oh wait. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. No. No. I didn't like it. It's not Cooking with Paris though. I just want to say I know I'm really hard on the show, and I know I'm saying this is the worst show we've reviewed so far. It's very difficult. It was very daring they tried to make it work it didn't i know that these people are more talented than this it did not work it did not come across i don't think it accomplished anything that it was trying to do and it was a mercy killing this cancellation now ian where could people find us you can tweet at us, follow us on Twitter or Instagram. I guess you can't Instagram at us. So follow us on either of those at one and done TV. Email us one and done pod at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts, some feedback, a show you'd really like us to review. Um, that'd be cool. Leave us a rating, hopefully five stars. Leave us a review on Apple uh, podcast. You know, I'd like to know what people think. Uh, I've heard some feedback from people I know. I'd love to have some feedback from people I don't know. Uh, who's got a hotter voice, me or John? Um, who is sexier, it's definitely me or John? Me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, who would you rather hang out with, me or John? <laughs> I just I just want to, I just need verification that I am, in fact, better than John uh, from an outside party. Ian just wants to. Get those lines in the sand real quick. That's right. And uh, Venmo me at Hamilton. Any amount of money is fine. The more the better. Always get yourself a lodge pan scraper. Isn't that right, John? Absolutely. And if you want to learn how to cook the perfect risotto and also watch what actually is probably the best portrait of the early days of the pandemic, watch How To with John Wilson. And with that, Ian, 
I think our connection is over. I think I'm cutting. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.